Libraries have long been a great escape for a lot of people, the perfect place to slip away from the hustle and bustle of life. But when the pandemic forced libraries to shut their doors, library leaders had to move swiftly to make sure they could still serve their communities. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Our guest this week is Dennis Walcott. He's president and CEO of the Queen's Public Library. He joins us to talk about how the Queen's Library pivoted during the pandemic and how COVID-19 isn't putting a damper on the library's 125th anniversary celebrations. Dennis, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. It's a pleasure. It's always an honor to be with you and uh, talking about Fordham, which is heart and soul for me as well. So the Queen's Public Library is celebrating its 125th anniversary. It's now an institution that's seen not one, but two pandemics, the Spanish flu and now, of course, COVID-19. What has the past year been like for the library? So I want to compliment our staff who have done a marvelous job in adapting uh, during this very serious and tragic period of our time. Uh, our staff, after we closed down, automatically just got into high gear to make sure that we were available through the virtual world. And staff, not just our librarians, not just our customer service people, but our technology people, and ramped up to the point where we offer over 70 virtual sessions per week uh, to the public of Queens and beyond. Uh, in addition to that, I think what we've been able to do is diversify our programs as well. So while we are not touching directly our customers in our buildings, we're reaching them in their living rooms and wherever they may be as well. You can even get the COVID-19 vaccine at least a couple of libraries in Queens, right? Well, what we've done is with our buildings, in addition to our buildings uh, serving a variety of purposes, serving the public as libraries with grab-and-go services, remote uh, printing services, uh, we've turned a number of our buildings first into testing sites. So three of our libraries serve as testing sites, and that's uh, the libraries that are Windsor Park, Kew Gardens Hills, and Lefferts. And for a brief period of time, Ozone Park also served as a testing site. And over 70,000 plus people have gone through the library doors to get tested. And so that'll continue for a while. And then most recently, we turned two of our libraries open to the city to serve as vaccine sites. Our largest library, Flushing Library, is now a vaccine site. And also Ozone Park, where the positivity rate has been extremely high, also serves as a vaccine site. And interestingly enough, some of our staff who first got their uh, first shots of the vaccine at John Adams High School, once the mayor made a decision to convert the high schools back to high schools and out of the vaccine business, uh, it then came to Flushing Library. So a number of them just got their second shots at the Flushing Library. And I was talking to someone earlier today and they were telling me how uh, it didn't look like our library. It was a vaccine center and I've toured it and the city has done a marvelous job. So our libraries have been serving a variety of different purposes and then one serves as a learning lab site for the city as well. What was the process like to pivot to a virtual world? How did you prioritize all of that? Well, I, I think a couple of things. One, we like 
the rest of the public at large had to readapt mentally as far as we would not be seeing people. And I think that was a big deal. I mean, and we talk about the social emotional side of not being able to interact with people. That's our business to serve the public. Our doors are open to everyone. Uh, our tagline is we speak your language because so many languages come through our door. So I think it was a mental adjustment as far as people saying, you know, can we have to really go through the process of how do we continue to serve the public? And then through our great team, they organized and developed a number of programs and whether it's reading the books to our children or doing other types of services, uh, staff immediately jumped into action. And then over a gradual period of time, we felt it was important then to try to open our doors, but only do it strategically, maintaining the safety of our staff as well as the public. So prior to opening our doors and even while we were still reorganizing with the virtual world, our great staff ordered PPE equipment and making sure that the material was available. Then we got out to our library branches to install the PPE equipment. And as a result of that, we built a number of libraries infrastructure or rebuilt it to make sure it was safe for the eventual staff that came in and then eventually the public. You, of course, once served as New York City's schools chancellor. How do you see the library as a place that can help kids who have fallen behind in their education during the pandemic? Well, one of the things is continuing our programs that we had in place, just unfortunately doing it virtually right now. So constantly through our various branches, through our connections and working with the local schools, working with the parents, working with our friends of particular library, we try to get the information out that we're doing these types of things. Uh, we developed an initiative with a group called BrainFuse, and BrainFuse provides both tutorial services, uh, high school application uh, services for preparing students in high school to go to college and financial aid support. So we work with BrainFuse to make sure they were available to the public at large. So we've done a variety of things to retool our outreach to students. Uh, in addition to that, we have the Wi-Fi capacity as well. And so we made sure that our Wi-Fi capability is outside of our building, especially since the buildings were closed initially, and making sure that people who may not have Wi-Fi at home are able to take advantage of at least getting the signal outside of our branches. So we've tried to do a number of things to make sure we're reaching uh, the public, but especially our children and the population of parents who may have a need for the type of services we offer. I was going to ask that question. Of course, we still do have a digital divide in the city. How are you able to provide Wi-Fi to those who still are in need? And I guess there was a plan for that. That as well as, as we continue to open up a little more and more and more, you know, having hotspots available uh, for families to take out as well. And that way they have the hotspot capability and having some type of uh, laptops available as well. So we're always looking to expand our footprint now to reach those who may not be able to uh, connect based on not having that ability. While you're, of course, overseeing the Queens Public Library, did you at all put your chancellor hat on at all in terms of thinking about how would you have handled this if you were still school's chancellor? Uh, quite frankly, not really. I mean, my job is to, I've been now the CEO of the Queens Public Library for five years. And I was thinking about this yesterday in that I was the last chancellor now almost eight years ago. So uh, my job is to be supportive of the chancellor. I was talking about the current chancellor we have in place now. And while I have not talked to her since she's become chancellor, uh, anything that we can do as a library system, it's our job to do that. I was on several task forces 
uh, before schools reopen, both at the city and the state level, you know, just giving support and guidance along that line. But I've always been a big believer uh, that it's one chancellor at a time and no telling how I would react. I think, but the other thing though, connected to that is that when I was chancellor, we had Sandy. And so that was a monumental, not to this extent, obviously, but we had a monumental undertaking with Hurricane Sandy and the number of schools that were out of commission as a result of flooding and having to, having to really recapture those days and then reopen schools as well. So a different type of challenge, but you know, being part of the city of New York and everything is supersized, you have to be prepared for that. So how have you been celebrating the library's 125th? Well, you, you started out by saying two pandemics and that we've been through two pandemics. And just recently, we took our mobile library out to visit a customer who's 104 years old. And it was a great experience. And, as, and he's sharp as a tack. I mean, really, he's just so focused on everything. And he really shocked us because while we didn't go inside and he didn't come outside, we stayed safe distance from each other. We had our mobile library there and he was able to read the words on the side of the banner that we had at the mobile, on the mobile library. And I was like, I can't see that. And his son said, I can't see that, but he was able to do that. And I mentioned that because he's going through two pandemics. And so we talked about the history of the library and we've been celebrating in a variety of ways. One of the interesting things that I found through our research folks is that the number of different sites our libraries have been located in over that 125 year period of time. Where we first started in Astoria, we are now the adding on branches, the modernizing of branches, the changing of the demographics. Uh, we've had special poem contests, uh, people to send their memories of the Queens Public Library to our memory project. Uh, we're looking at a number of initiatives as far as how we just reinforce who we are, what we're doing. Uh, not directly connected, but taking place during our 125th year. We had a 24 hour uh, Black Health Mental Health Summit uh, that went way beyond the borough of Queens. And we had people out in the West Coast who participated. And the wild guy that I am, I was up at three o'clock in the morning to look at the insomnia session, uh, just because I am who I am. And, you know, we had a variety of different sessions. We had people who uh, were able to uh, talk about hip hop and had a barbershop and a beauty shop session. So we've been trying to do a variety of different things to celebrate our history, having our mobile library go to various communities and doing it all again safely in the context of uh, the environment that we're currently living in. What can you tell me about Love Letters to Queens, this curated list of all Queens public library materials set in and around the borough? That's pretty cool. It's been really cool. And people have been sending their love letters. I have a love letter. I mean, I haven't sent it in yet, but I mean, I love our libraries. I have vivid recollections of going to my neighborhood library in Queens, St. Albans Library, as a very young child and walking up there from my house or going with my school, which was down the block, and people have been sending in their love letters and they've been doing post-its on our website as well. And I mean, it's just a variety of things that people have been sharing around their experience with the Queens Public Library. And, and the beauty of our library is that, like any library, it spans the gamut of ages. And so you have love letters for people who have been part of the system for a long period of time and some who are recent. So we've tried to capture that information. And as you said, it's curated and our Queens Memory Project has been taking a very active role in collecting a lot of the history and data 
about the Queens Public Library. Yeah, you have something called the QPL Stories Project, right? The QPL Stories Project is telling stories about QPL and the experiences of the Queens Public Library and making sure that we capture that. And so we're doing that as well. I mean, a whole host of things. We're gonna be making some announcements in the future around new projects that we're doing uh, with different community partners as well, trying to just reinforce who we are. Uh, I can call us the community's living room. And part of that is a partnership uh, with their various community-based organizations and institutions. And so we're always looking to partner more and more and expand our reach both in the type of things that you're talking about with the love letters as well as the stories but also in the expansion of services as well uh, as we move forward during the pandemic you referenced yourself as a kid going to the library i understand that the hardy boys were quite the influence on you it, it was i mean i always tell the story i loved the hardy boys i mean the hardy boys for me gave me the ability to travel to other lands, other locations from St. Albans, Queens. As I sat either at home or in the library reading about the Hardy Boys. And I vividly remember, I mean, I remember it so clearly of waiting for the next series of books to come in of the Hardy Boys series. And so the Hardy Boys to me were very important as far as getting exposure out of just the neighborhood itself but what was out there and then solving mysteries and you know, really taking a look at, I guess, in a different way, problem solving and what it meant to the public as far as how they went about doing their business. So yeah, Hardy, Hardy Boys were really important in the development. And then in middle school, I remember, of course, reading a lot of books, but I remember reading the book about Ralph Bunch, who was also a Queens resident and then Jackie Robinson and UCLA and it touched on college. So I mean, books and reading and my parents and my grandparents and hopefully what my wife and I, mainly my wife have done with our children as far as reading has been a key part of the development of my life and the life of the community. I remember having such a great sense of pride the day I received my first library card. Do you think kids today feel the same way about that, that great sense of pride when they get their library card? So I want to ask you a question before I answer the question. Yeah. When you got your first library card. Oh, I think I was about seven or eight years old, maybe, maybe slightly younger. Yeah. See, I, I think I was probably around five or so. And I always smile because probably my handwriting then is better than my handwriting now. If I had to sign for a library card, it would probably be totally something one could not read now compared to then. Uh, but I think kids are excited. I do think children still excited to get their library card. I see when the parents bring the children in and children are doing it with pride. I mean, again, this is part of the unfortunate part of not being totally open to the public, just to see the excitement and the enthusiasm of the children visiting the library and story time in person. So yeah, I, I think people are very excited when I go out sometimes with our team uh, with the mobile library, we go to different community centers or daycare centers, or just being out in the borough itself. And parents are coming up with their children and children are excited to either get a book directly, have their library card. So I think that excitement about reading and a library card and what it means, especially with new immigrant populations. I mean, a lot of times the first place they stop 
is a library because it's word of mouth around job services, uh, where they can get information, and for free. Do you see the library as a place that can provide refuge, whether that be for a kid with an unfortunate home situation or even for a senior who might otherwise be isolated at home? I had a real story to answer your question. And the answer simply is yes, but I'll give you a story that goes along with that yes. So there's a gentleman who would come into the Central Library when we were open every day. And he would get there when we opened our doors at nine o'clock. And my desk was on the main floor of the library. So he walked by my desk or my chief librarian and I and other librarians would be at the door greeting our customers as they come in. And he would come in always respectful, how are you? And shake hands. And then he goes back to the same table each time. And he would sit there, sit there, sit there. Never really saw him go up to get a book. Never saw him to really roam around and talk to other customers. And he just sat there. People respected him just sitting there. And then he would leave at 2.30, meet it again the next day. And so one day I said, you know, excuse me, if you don't mind, you know, I see you come in at 9. I see you leave at 9, uh, 2.30. And, you know, I don't really see you reading. Can I just ask, what do you get out of coming to the library? And he said, the library is my oasis away from the craziness of outside. I mean, that said it all to me. I mean, that really captured it. I got another story of another gentleman who, um, I know how old he is because we celebrated his birthday informally here one year but now he must be 77. So when he was around 74 or so, um, he just would come in and read and read and read and read. And, you know, we struck, struck up a conversation, found out he lived in a homeless shelter and he would come here at nine o'clock in the morning, find a seat, had a book and just read. And he said, you know, I'm in a shelter and um, I just come here to read. I said, well, you take your books out. He said, well, I'm in the shelter. I can't take books out. I said, yes, we can. I said, we can get you a library card. He said, really? So he signed up for a library card. And he then started increasing his uh, number of books that he would read by taking them out and bringing them back and everything else. And, and I say that because, again, this was his safety zone to come in and sit down and have books at his disposal and be available to read. And so whether it's reading, whether it's just escaping, whether it's getting a service, um, that's what we're here for. People know that we will not check your credentials walking in the door. We don't care, we don't ask. We just ask you to be proper when you come through the door. But beyond that, everyone is welcome. And that has to reinforce the value of a library as far as feeling safe and protected and not having someone from uh, whatever background that may be uh, intimidating or scaring an individual, uh, making sure they're protected here. Queens, of course, is an enormously diverse borough. Many languages are spoken in Queens. How is that reflected in the materials and services you offer? It's really interesting. I was talked to a number of people today and I was talking to someone earlier about that and so I was speaking to a different uh, group virtually and they said to us or said to me they said you know she was shocked on the number of different books and materials and the different languages that are in a particular library she goes to and I said yeah no our folks are very very diligent as far as making sure our books and materials 
reflect the various languages of our community. And so we definitely have uh, a tremendous amount of material in a variety of languages. Also, we partner with various governments uh, which will donate uh, books and materials uh, to the library that's native to that particular country. Um, we have the Flushing Library, which has a diverse Asian American population. And one of the things that's always struck me about Flushing, aside from the sheer volume when Flushing was open, I mean, we would average five to 6,000 people a day coming through the doors of Flushing, a tremendous number. But were the newspapers from the various uh, provinces and countries uh, of the people who come through the door. And they didn't want to go online. I mean, they wanted the feel and the touch of their local native newspaper. And we have sections and floors of different material. So yes, we have material that reflect the cultures of people who are there. Another library um, is one where the Langston Hughes Library, which started historically as a predominantly in a black community. And over the years, the uh, community has changed its demographics and still the black community, uh, but also the increasing number of people from various uh, Latino countries. And we've seen that shift also in the materials. So as neighborhoods change, we make sure that we adapt to that change with the materials, the books, and items available in native languages. How many branches are there now in Queens? Well, we have 66, but currently we have uh, soon to be 39 that are open and then others that are serving other purposes like the vaccine sites, uh, the testing sites. Uh, we have one that's de dedicated to our mailable program, which mails to not just homebound elderly, but also to people who may not be able to get around and relegated to the house for some type of physical infirmity. Um, so our goal is to expand that. And so we'll be opening up a new round of libraries over the next several weeks, uh, which will be initially three days a week, because what we've done is we have a staffing pattern that's really been really good, but they're spread thin right now because we develop teams where say if someone in team A tests positive, then we'll take the entire team out and then have team B go in to cover XYZ, a particular library. And so that's spread us thin as far as going to all of our libraries opening. And then what we've also done, like I indicated earlier, is ordering the PPE equipment and outfitting libraries to make sure they're safe. So we've been doing that as well. So in total, we have 66, uh, a number of them, several of them are uh, being renovated. So uh, for example, uh, Far Rockway had a satellite site, uh, Far Rockway is under a major renovation. Uh, Steinway is having a major renovation. Glendale is having a major renovation. So we have three libraries that are out with different types of renovation and more to come that will be renovated, upgrading them. How are things looking budgetarily in a city that is of course struggling to get through the pandemic and obviously, you know, funding is always at a premium? So. We've been in a position of uh, being able to continue to provide services virtually. Uh, we did take a funding hit from the city, understandably so, because the city is in a very difficult financial position right now. But we've been able to absorb that 
uh, funding hit for this current fiscal year through accruals and other uh, charges that we've been able to absorb without really impacting our staff or the service hours. Obviously, uh, a number of our buildings are still to be open, but we have a number of our buildings open for grab-and-go services and remote printing as well, and more to come. Uh, but if the current cuts that are on the table actually go through for next fiscal year, then we have some serious decisions to make as far as how we'll carry out uh, the services in the current model that we're in. So we have a variety of scenarios that we've laid out as far as what we will do, uh, depending on if, hopefully not, there will be cuts. And if there are, we'll be prepared to adjust uh, accordingly. Of course, summer is coming, and obviously kids do rely on the library during the summer, even though this has been a very atypical school year for them. What programs do you have for kids in the summer months, or what are you thinking about in terms of engaging with kids over the summer? So I think that's directly connected to the reopening of our doors in a very limited way, and not just to children, but to the public itself. And so we've had a number of meetings as far as some of our libraries serving as cooling centers just for the general public, for those who may not have um, the availability of being cool wherever they are living. And so we're exploring that and also limited program services as far as people getting information and then reinforcing that information with virtual sessions. So a lot depends on the uh, climate of where we are with positivity rates and everything else as far as uh, the virus is concerned. So that's to be determined. Our goal is to try to make sure we maximize the services, but at the same time, we also want to be very careful and very clear in protecting both the public and our staff. I was recently reading an article about a woman by the name of Ruth Herzberg. Ruth is our longest serving staff member who I think is approaching 50 years. And Ruth is fantastic, and she's had a variety of roles over a 50-year period of time. And currently, she's involved with our uh, facilities and construction side of the business and taking a look at how we both outfit uh, new buildings or remodeled buildings, as well as addressing some of the construction issues and working with our, our capital folks as well. So Ruth still plays a very pivotal role. And it's funny because... We have a number of our staff who've been here for an extremely long period of time. Uh, one of our administrative assistants, I think, uh, has been here roughly 42 years. And so we have a variety of people who just have been here because they love the library and they serve the library. And during this challenging period of time, uh, they've been the heart and soul and uh, the real creative side of what we're doing. This might be like asking a parent who their favorite kid is, but do you have a favorite branch in the system? I, I do not, but I mean, yeah, it's not because of favorite child. I try to go, each one is very unique as far as their operation is concerned. And so the, the way they operate, the style of their building, the interaction with the public is basically the same because all of our folks engage the public in very constructive, friendly ways and give the information that's necessary. Um, I mean, I live in Queens, I live in Cambria Heights, so I, I try to find the balance of being in Cambria Heights but not overwhelming uh, the Cambria Heights staff. So sometimes when I'm walking down Linden Boulevard to do whatever and I will wave, sometimes I'm alone because I don't want to 
just say, oh, he's here again. Um, but no, all of them represent different things because they're all quaint. Um, Broad Channel is probably our most unique library in that it's the smallest library. I mean, it really is a very small library. But when I'm going over to the Broad Channel area and visit um, uh, Peninsula or Auburn or um, Howard Beach, and I make sure I stop at Broad Channel because it just has a very unique flavor. And then you go to the extreme when Flushing was open. And Flushing, like I said, is huge. I mean, it's five to 6,000 people a day. So they all offer different types of things that benefits the public and the demographics of the neighborhood. I think for me, other thing that I enjoy the most, just seeing the type of public that comes in through the door and the type of services our staff are providing to me are great things. When you look back at the 125 year history of the Queens Public Library, what surprises you most about that history? Uh, adapting to what's going on in the environment and how you've seen people, you know, keep pace with the changing environment. Um, and I'm, the library, I'm way older than you, but the library that I remember is obviously a totally different library than exists right now and probably the library you remember is totally different and that's as a result of the resiliency and the ability to adapt to what's going on in the marketplace i think the other thing over the 125 year period of time is that the expansion of program services as well and so we have gotten along with our other libraries throughout the country very program oriented as far as providing support to the public that's been a tremendous thing because people have really benefited. And then there's a, a connective tissue to that because when they're in the building, they're going to take out a book. We want you to take out a book and informing the public of using the computers and being able to take advantage of the computers. So having, I think, the expansiveness now versus before the types of things libraries offer, I think is probably one of the greatest changes. And then our outreach in the community. And I can't speak to the past past, but I know that with what we do now, we're always out interacting with the community. Dennis Walcott, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much. This has been great. My pleasure. Dennis Walcott is president and CEO of the Queens Public Library. More info at queenslibrary.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thanks so much for listening.